Welcome to Trust Issues, a podcast by Kepler Trust Intelligence. Please be aware that there can be a time lag when we release podcasts, meaning time-sensitive information may no longer be accurate at the time of publication. Also note that past performance is not a reliable indicator of future results. The value of investments can fall as well as rise, and you may get back less than you invested when you decide to sell your investments. It's strongly recommended that if you are a private investor, independent financial advice should be taken before making any investment or financial decision. Finally, Kepler Partners LLP has a relationship with the company covered in this podcast, which may impair its objectivity. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Trust Issues. This week, I am joined by Abbas Bahuda, who is the assistant manager of the Schroders Asia Pacific Fund. So, Abbas, thanks very much for joining us today. Uh, to get started, could you talk a bit about what the trust objectives are, um, what you invest in for someone that isn't familiar with the trust? Sure, yeah. Um, so, the trust objective is to provide capital growth by investing in equities of Asian companies, uh, and that excludes the Middle East and Japan. Um, so all of the trust current holdings are, are listed, and it's not historically had any significant exposure to unlisted securities. Uh, and our aim is to outperform a, a fairly broad a- Asian benchmark, which is the MSCI All Country Asia X Japan benchmark. And we, we aim to outperform that benchmark over time on a total return basis. So just to give a flavor of the sort of markets we're invested in, the larger markets the trust is invested in are places like India, Hong Kong, Singapore, Taiwan, Korea, uh, and China. Um, But we also have exposure to several of the smaller Asian markets, such as Thailand, Indonesia, the Philippines, and Vietnam. Well, what sort of qualities then do you look for when you're uh, investing in a company? So growth growth can be quite a vague term what, what does that mean for you yeah i mean it's a, it's a good question that the trust portfolio doesn't really have a strong bias between growth and value although it typically sits slightly on the growth side of the spectrum uh, and a key characteristic we look for in, in stocks is, is more rather than growth versus value is really quality um which which again can be a bit of a vague term and people define it differently but we think of it in terms of both the governance of the of the company and the profitability potential. So we look to invest in in well-governed companies where our interests as minority shareholders are not subordinated to majority shareholders' interests, or where management incentives are not aligned with with our interests. So and and in addition to that, corporate governance, uh, as I said, we we like companies which have sort of enduring competitive advantages which enable them to, to sustainably earn returns uh, above their cost of capital. Uh, so that doesn't necessarily have to be the case right now. We're, we're happy to own a company which is not currently earning superior returns, as long as we can see that they have a realistic path for them to get to those returns over a forecastable time horizon. Uh, but in addition to all that quality bias, you know, I think it's, it's important to say we do have a strong valuation discipline as well. So much of the work which our team of analysts do, you know, we have a large team of experienced research analysts based out in the region. A lot of the work that they do is is assessing what the fair values for stocks should be and what the upside and downside risks are under different scenarios for those stocks. So we do uh, always look at the valuation of companies as well as whether they have those those sort of quality characteristics that we like. And if a 
stock is high quality, but it's priced for perfection, you know, that doesn't leave you much margin of safety should should there be a negative surprise or a risk uh, materializing, which you, you hadn't anticipated. So we look for quality companies, but stocks we buy for the portfolio need to also make sense from a from a valuation point of view. Okay. Well on on a similar on similar topic, um you look through the, the portfolio and there's some companies in there which have been you've held for, for really long periods of time. Um so what sort of determines that? I mean, why why um what does the investment process look like? What determines when you sell a holding? Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Our, our average holding period is typically in the region of three plus years. And that's very much related to our investment process, which is a, a bottom-up one. In other words, a process focused very much on individual stock picking. Uh, and as I mentioned, we, we sort of primarily look for stocks which have enduring competitive advantages or which operate in markets with high barriers to entry, which enable them to earn superior returns over the mid to, to long term. So, so hopefully we're not going to be chopping and changing uh, uh, you know, our holdings very regularly because of that sort of long, longer term focus. And we, we, we always try and steer clear of companies which are not operating sustainably or which, make, or which are making unsustainably high returns at the moment. Uh, so hopefully, if we've got that investment thesis right, that means we can hold the stocks for a reasonable period. But of course, it, you know, life doesn't always work out so neatly. And we do sometimes sell stocks earlier than, than we had planned to. In the best case, that's because they performed very well. Uh, they're no longer showing enough upside to their value. So, so we can take profits on that stock, hopefully in favor of other stocks we've identified with more upside potential. But of course, other times there'll be developments, which mean our original investment thesis is no longer valid or the risks to it are higher than we had expected. And in those cases, we'll, we'll review the case. And if it's no longer attractive, we will sell, uh, sell down the holding. Well, it's been a, a tough 18 months or so for more growth-oriented stocks. I know you said that, that your portfolio isn't just entirely geared towards them. Um, nonetheless, yeah. has that allowed you to add to the portfolio at all? As you say, growth stocks have generally struggled relative to value stocks in 2021 and 2022, having performed very well in the initial period of the pandemic throughout 2020. Uh, and as I said uh, before, and as you just pointed out, the trust is not an out-and-out growth fund. But we had naturally shifted the portfolio in a slightly more value direction by the end of 2020, given the spread in relative valuations that we were seeing at that time between uh, growth and incomes, uh, or growth and value stocks, I should say. Uh, of course, we did have some more growth-oriented names in the, in the portfolio, which were hit. But that valuation discipline that I was just talking about meant we did manage to avoid some of the more frothy parts of the market. So more recently, as, as those valuations have come back down to earth with higher interest rates, more opportunities have started to appear. Uh, that's, that's certainly true. In recent months, markets like India have corrected to some degree from historically very high valuations, which increases the opportunity set uh, in, in a country which is really a very structurally attractive market, but which had started to look pretty fully valued um, last year after a period of very strong performance. Uh, outside of India, we've also seen some of the internet names across the region having their valuations come off significantly from their lockdown era highs. Uh, but you've got to be very careful there when you're assessing what the demand is going to look like for those online services uh, as economies reopen, as there's been a lot of 
distortions to consumer behavior in the last couple of years. So I'd say, yeah, certainly more opportunities appearing, but you've still got to be quite careful in, in assessing the, the, the bottom line of these, uh, these companies. Okay, well, you, your second largest weighting is to financials. Um, I think for most people in the UK, they tend to think of financials as a sector that's more income oriented. So what is interesting there from a, from a growth perspective in your view? And you might have many financial companies, which which you know broadly includes banks, insurers, even stock exchanges. They're rel- relatively high yielding companies, and that's that's also broadly true in Asia. What I think is a bit different in the region is that the penetration of financial services is also generally lower than in more developed markets, with fewer households having mortgages, credit cards, saving products, and, and so on. So that means there should be potential for growth in the sector on top of the return you get from from dividends. Uh, The balance between income and growth does vary quite significantly from country to country across Asia. Um, You know, a country like India, for example, the banks there, they tend not to have very high dividend yields, really. Uh, But clearly, there is a very interesting long-term opportunity there from increased financial inclusion. If you look at the demographics there and penetration rates, you know, that's that's an interesting growth opportunity, which isn't necessarily there in, in markets such as the UK, which are more um, mature financial services uh, markets. Um, but of course, you know, there are many other considerations to take into account when investing in financials. But I think it's certainly possible to find growth opportunities in, in that sector in, in Asia. Well, you also have some exposure to Vietnam, which I think a lot of fund managers investing in Asia or in emerging markets, just because it's not in the the EM index at the moment anyway, That's right. uh, tend to askew. Um, so, what what's appealing about the about Vietnam? I mean, given that you've you've invested there, yeah, I mean, it's it's a very interesting country. Uh, it's a very interesting economy, and I think it's it's one of the actual great success stories in, in the ASEAN region. So that's the sort of Southeast Asian uh, region. It's been a, a very successful attractor of FDI, foreign direct investment. So that's things like multinational companies investing in moving their supply chains, diversifying supply chains in the region into places like Vietnam, which has you know decent infrastructure, sort of stable politics and a policy environment that's very much uh, geared towards encouraging foreign investment. Uh, so that's that's been a very positive driver of growth in Vietnam and, and moving uh, people out of the, uh, the countryside into uh, more industrial areas where they're starting to, uh, you know, move up the value chain in terms of the value add that they're, they're doing in the in the supply chain uh, across across the, the region. So that's one one element. The other side is, you know, the demographics and penetration story I mentioned when we were talking about India. That's also very much the case in uh, in Vietnam and and in Southeast Asia uh, more broadly. So when we look at the economy in in Vietnam, there there's there's lots to like. But I think you touched on an important point there when when you mentioned the index inclusion, and the reason why it is still treated as a frontier market by most index providers is that the equity market, the public equity market there, uh, is is still fairly uh, rudimentary, I'd say, or, or poorly developed. It's not as open to foreign investment as many of the other uh, regional markets. There's strict foreign ownership limits in, in quite a few sectors. Uh, and the actual opportunity set on the stock market 
is narrower than the economic opportunity um, and, and the FDI opportunity set that, that we see. So I think it is a very exciting market. You know, realistically, it's not one which is going to be a, a very large part of any Asian portfolio, at least until that public uh, equity market side uh, develops further. They open up more, there's more listings and foreign ownership limits are, are, are raised uh, across more and more sectors, which you know, I think we're hopeful to see. I think the government uh, is quite uh, keen to get themselves upgraded to emerging market status. Um, but these things take time and, and it's it's not going to be an overnight uh, process. Okay, so an- another thing is that you are currently, anyway, substantially underweight China relative to the benchmark, um, although it's still the country of the largest exposure to you. Um, I think China has, has had, to say the least, quite a, a tumultuous few years since the start of the pandemic and arguably even before that. Um, you know, we've seen a lot of regulatory changes um, on, on things like video games, on the financial sector, where you saw the, the anti-PO being basically scrapped, um, also in e-commerce. So has that, along with you know, some of the other things that have happened there, changed your view on what sort of companies offer attractive returns? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. It's been a very tumultuous period in China and very volatile time for, for the stock market. Um, we, we don't think you can look at you know, the historic valuations which China was trading on uh, and assume companies can get to those ratings again, given all those changes you mentioned, primarily the regulatory environment, but also just generally much more broadly, the, the sort of policy environment has become a little bit less predictable. There's a lot more scrutiny on various sectors. There's clearly more of a push to, uh, to get uh, the private sector aligned with uh, what are the government's policy uh, policy goals? So I think you know we can't just look at historic valuations and and where the market is trading now and and simplistically think well there's there's lots of upside to get back to those valuations. So we don't think you're you're going to get a full reversal of those regulatory measures. You know I think it became very clear that for example fintech you mentioned uh, you know Ant Group which was you know one of the leading fintechs and and the IPO there which was which was stopped you know. We think the regulatory uh, catch-up that they've done in terms of bringing fintech more broadly under the same sort of control that they that they uh, exert over the financial sector, you know, that is clearly a policy priority which which I don't think is going to be disappearing because it's very important for them that there aren't uh, leakages or loopholes in the financial sector and and financial stability uh, remains a priority. So. Again, those regulatory changes are, are not going to be reversed. And the other side of the return story has been generally higher competition than than uh, we used to have in, in some sectors. So e-commerce in particular, uh, some of the internet platform names, there's definitely been emergence of relatively new competitors such as ByteDance, which is not a listed company, but is well known. You know, they, uh, they own TikTok outside of China and Douyin within China. And that is a, a, a very large uh, and, and significant competitor now in many of the same spheres of uh, e-commerce and internet that, uh, that listed companies compete in. So we do think certainly returns uh, profiles have changed and it, and, it, and it does require quite a lot of uh, analysis to, to get comfortable about the return outlook for, for some of those companies. Okay. Well, on a on a similarly perhaps pessimistic note, much of Asia's and and really the world's growth has been fueled by China over the past um, say three four decades. 
Uh, you saw at the start of this year that the country's population is shrinking, I think for the first time, maybe not, I don't know if it's on record, but definitely for the first time in a long time. That kind of hints that you may end up in a Japan-type situation with sort of stagnation, slow growth. For, I mean, first of all, do you think those are, are valid points? Do you think those are valid concerns to have? Um, and if so, does that sort of change how you have to think about investing in the country? Yeah, I, I, think, it's a, I think they are valid uh, points. And certainly, we wouldn't expect GDP growth to be quite as strong, uh, you know, as as some of the very high numbers we've seen in the past in China. And, and partly that's, as you say, the demographics, the sort of maturing of some uh, some sectors, um, uh, but also the reality that things like the property sector, you know, uh, have, have become much more uh, difficult places to see a, a lot of strong growth, not least given, given the size of that sector now. So GDP growth necessarily, you know, we're not economists. As I say, we, we invest bottom up. We don't spend a lot of time worrying about GDP growth because Actually, historically, GDP growth is not necessarily correlated that closely to stock market returns. What we really need to consider more is the returns on capital that companies can make in, in China and across the region, and how much of those returns flow to shareholders. So really, what probably matters more than the sort of headline growth rate is the policy and regulatory environment, competitive dynamics, geopolitics, restrictions on, uh, on trade, and corporate governance. So those those are the factors we we tend to focus on, uh, and we have been significantly underweight China for some years, um, but that is also offset to some extent by an overweight to markets like Hong Kong, and actually other regional companies which benefit from Chinese consumption and growth without necessarily being listed there. For example, you know we have experienced natural resource companies in Australia or IT companies in Korea and Taiwan. Now these are. Uh, not just reliant on on Chinese growth, but it's a it's a it's a significant proportion of their of their uh, customer base, um, and of course China itself is a very large market. So there's really wide opportunity set there. As you mentioned earlier, we do have a large exposure to to China, despite being underweight in the benchmark, and that just really reflects the fact that there are a large number of sectors and stocks uh, to invest in, and therefore, even if the top down picture isn't necessarily appealing. You know, our focus on, on fundamental company research means that hopefully we can find those opportunities uh, that, that can survive and hopefully thrive, uh, despite the, the, the top-down picture not being so supportive. And then finally, just looking beyond China, which of course is an important market, but you know, Asia is a lot broader than just China. There's plenty of countries in the region which have really bright growth prospects. You know, we talked about India, the ASEAN countries like Indonesia and Vietnam. Uh, you know, those are really good examples of countries which which don't have some of those growth headwinds, have an opportunity for for structurally high growth um, going forward. The demographics are better, for example, uh, and and there's lots of scope for uh, for productivity boosting investment there. So that diversity of investment opportunity across the region is really one of the key attractions of Asia, uh, in our view. Okay, well, that is probably a good point at which for us to stop. So, Abbas, thanks very much uh, for joining us today, and hopefully we can chat again soon.